You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Several folks have shared that it would be helpful for me to slow down my delivery and pacing. And I share this because there is no more convincing evidence that I can present to you to demonstrate that I'm not here preaching God's word out of my own strength, but rather I'm here today preaching in spite of my own weakness and inadequacy. And at the same time, I'd also remind you that at the conclusion of today's service, you can download this sermon on SoundCloud and listen to it at half speed. Please turn with me to Ecclesiastes 3. We'll be starting in verse 16. I encourage you to have God's word open in front of you as we dig into his truth. What you need to hear today will not be coming from me, but will be coming from God's word through the power of his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, you are the source of everything. You are sovereign and you are just. Help us today by the power of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to the beauty and comfort of your justice and your timing and allow us to experience in a new way the joy and the confidence of your justice. Studying and preparing to preach the book of Ecclesiastes has proved to be both challenging and humbling as God's word pierces and cuts through to the very core of my own heart. At a first glance, the book of Ecclesiastes is a disconnected and esoteric rendering of life on planet Earth. Upon deeper study, it's a poignant and piercing analysis of humanity, the reality of life, and our very existence. There are few, if any, literary, scientific, or philosophical works in the history of humankind that can rival Ecclesiastes in analyzing and deciphering the deepest and hardest philosophical questions of life. Having come this far in the book, we can now begin to put the pieces together and see this for ourselves. We've been preaching this series for a number of weeks now, and let's get up to speed in where we've been so far in this incredible book. Let's recap some fundamentals. Firstly, the author is very likely King Solomon, referred to as Kohelet, meaning teacher, preacher, or one who brings people together. The book starts out with the infamous vanity of vanities. All is vanity, or meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless, depending on your translation. But the original word used by Kohelet is neither vanity nor meaningless, it's Havel. And Havel is a word that means mist or vapor. And it's used to communicate that the concept that we can't grasp or hold on to or get our arms around life. Life isn't meaningless, but it is impossible for us to grasp and hold on to it. Under the sun is an idiom that refers to life lived here on planet Earth. Life lived under the S-U-N. A life that's lived distinct and apart from God. In ancient Hebrew, the idiom would have held the meaning a life lived apart from God. Now let's recap where the book has taken us. Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 to 11, everything is havel, everything is like a mist or a vapor that we cannot grasp. We cannot get our arms around nor hold on to life on planet Earth. 12 to 18, man's wisdom is futile. God has laid down an indisputable pattern for how life should be lived, and man has only been able to offer a most pathetic counter view of that wisdom and what it should be. 
2, 1 through 16. Seeking earthly pleasure is such an empty pursuit that every one of us has recognized its futility and the need for God's divine intervention. 17 through 26, God is the only source of life's meaning. 3, 1 to 15, just last week, God is sovereign over every part of life. In times of war, peace, tearing down and building up, God is perfectly in control and working out his purpose. In spite of everything mankind can throw at him. And finally, in the culmination of everything before it, the author argues that God is just. In fact, God is the source of justice. It's at this point that the author has concluded a lengthy but systematic argument. Let's review one more time and let's recognize this well-constructed argument the author lays out. Again, number one is the statement of reality. Life without God is impossible to grasp. Number two, this is the problem. Wisdom is futile and pleasure is futile. He's exploring the opposite extremes here. And then he layers on the answer. God is the only source of meaning. God is sovereign and God is just. God is just is our focus for today. Now part of our sermon text includes the first six verses of chapter four. Chapter four transitions to a different writing style, one of poetry. The writing themselves resembles that of Proverbs with short sayings clustered around various themes. This poetry section goes from chapter four through chapter 10, and in this section, Ecclesiastes moves through several major issues from the viewpoint of a life lived under the sun or a life lived apart from God, while contrasting that with the viewpoint of faith in God. However, the thrust of the final point in the author's opening argument ends at the end of chapter three. And today our thesis, our big idea is this. In spite of man's wickedness, God accomplishes ultimate justice, and he does so through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And through that lens, let's look at our passage. Ecclesiastes 3, starting in verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppression that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. The very first thing that we see in verse 16 is that with man there is no justice. And I saw something else under the sun, 
In the place of judgment, wickedness was there, and in the place of justice, wickedness was there. And with man there is no justice, because man has perverted justice. July 12, 2015, I received the phone call that we all dread. It was a Sunday morning. My extended family was gathered in Three Hills to celebrate a birthday. And I stepped out of the church service to take a call from my sister who was traveling down from a task with her family and would be joining us later that day. When I heard her voice, I knew to expect the worst. She tearfully explained they had been involved in an auto accident and that her husband, my best friend, didn't make it. And her 10-month-old daughter was critically injured and being airlifted to Calgary. The collision reconstruction report would confirm that a medium-sized black SUV traveling at 120 to 160 kilometers per hour blew through a stop sign impacting my sister's minivan, killing her husband on impact and critically injuring her 10-month-old daughter. A trip to the emergency room at Red Deer Regional Hospital, the news that our 10-month-old niece had only hours left to live, and another trip to Calgary Children's so that my sister could hold her daughter one last time before she passed away. A year later, a judge would pass sentence for the driver of that black SUV. 18 months in prison, he'd served 12. The twisted nature of our Canadian and human justice and legal system would see the family of the imprisoned driver bring a lawsuit against my sister to support a counter-insurance claim. On top of that, Section 8, Subsection 2 of the Alberta Fatal Accidents Act offers a predetermined cash amount for victims surviving family members. I quote, the province shall award $82,000 to the spouse of the deceased and $49,000 to each child of the deceased person. The language and the amounts in this law may seem crude to the passive observer, but they are infinitely painful to those living through their implementation. And this injustice at the hands of the justice system is not, nor was not, a situation unique to my family, but a reality played out across the globe each and every day. Violent murderers go unpunished because they are found to be not criminally responsible. The law and the courts rule that offenders cannot be held accountable for their actions because they were too drunk or too high. Let's read God's word one more time. And I'll remind you that this is God's word, penned thousands of years in advance of today. And let's pay special attention to the piercing nature of the indisputable truth of the words of Kohelet. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of justice, wickedness was there. You know, the point is clear. In identifying who is just and who can deliver true justice, we can rule out man. In spite of even our best intentions, we can never be perfectly just. And often we're just plain wicked. No human judge can see every angle, every nuance, every undertone in determining the most just course of action. And so we get it wrong to the point that our attempts at justice, when unpacked and unraveled, are actually wicked. They lead to further destruction 
and they do not accomplish what we need in actual justice. Now skipping down to chapters four, one to six, this adds some additional color to the injustice of life taking place under the SUN. Four, one to three, again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declare that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. We read here about man's unjust oppression of the weak. This is not just oppression, but it's particularly bitter in that the author describes the situation where the oppressors have the power and the oppressed do not. Without a God who provides the moral framework of right and wrong, there is no reason for anyone not to abuse their power and oppress those below them. And verse 2 points out that the only rational response to a world like this is suicide. To be dead. Because only when we're dead can we be free. There should be no confusion or uncertainty as to why we live in a world plagued by suicide. When we reject God, that is an expected and logical outcome. Thankfully, that isn't the world we live in. There is a God, and He is perfectly just. And we'll get there in just a moment. Ecclesiastes 4, 4-6 says, And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. And here we read about man's unjust approach to work. The author identifies that the main motivation for work is human rivalry. In Genesis, we know that God created us to create, that work was God's idea, that he demonstrated this for us as part of his work in the six days of creation. But sadly, there is a further injustice that we face in a life lived apart from God. And that is that from man's perspective, the only reason to work is to one-up or best those around you. This injustice takes a further turn in exploring the other extreme. If we're not going to compete in the rat race of work and money, we can also take the opposite approach, laziness and rejecting work. The picture here is one of self-cannibalism. Man doesn't earn or provide for himself, but consumes himself. Verse 6 is at least a comforting and wise advice to complete this grouping of verses. The language and words used here for handful versus handfuls advises the reader to chart a middle course between the extremes of verse 4, worldly with success at all costs, and verse 5, which is laziness. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. This is a subtle hint, and it links to the conclusion of the argument in 3.22 about the right response to an unjust world. But we're not quite there yet. So, having looked in depth at the injustice of man, we now turn to the true justice we find in God. And back up to verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 17. God will bring true justice. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. The first sub-point here is that God's justice is all-encompassing. His judgment includes the righteous and the wicked. 
All will be judged. And we have ample evidence throughout the scriptures to support this. In Genesis 18, 25, Abraham pleads for God to recognize and spare the righteous. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death and the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham recognizes that there needs to be a proper accounting for the good that is done. We won't turn there, but in Psalm 73, the psalmist implores God to deal harshly with the wicked, as he does many times in the Psalms. And at the end of all time, all will be judged. The wicked will be punished, and the righteous will be rewarded. Turn with me to Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the fire. We know too that the righteous will be rewarded. Matthew 16, 27 says, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father, and then he will repay each person according to what they have done. And we know that not all those who are saved will be rewarded in the same way. 1 Corinthians 3.15 says, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The rewards will not be equal, but they will be just. And so we have a clear picture that when God brings true justice, number one, his justice is all-encompassing. Secondly, God's justice prevails in the midst of man's injustice. God is doing this and will accomplish this in spite of all of mankind's injustice. At the time that Kohelet reminds us that God will provide an ultimate and perfect justice, he is quick to remind us that God will do so in the face of what we see around us. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Everything else that's been mentioned thus far in the book, and specifically our first verse 16, is in view here. God's justice prevails in the midst of our injustice. But even more than just prevailing in the midst of wickedness and human injustice, point number three is that God is glorified in human injustice. 3, 18 to 20. says, I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Let's unpack how God is glorified in human injustice. Number one, man's injustice proves God's sovereignty. 
In verse 18, the word testing is probably more accurately translated as making it clear. That God is making it clear to them so that they may see that they, they by themselves, are animals. I will submit to you that the point here is to highlight the creator-creature distinction. They by themselves highlights that removing God from the picture, back to the Son of the Sun theme. And when we remove God from the picture, to quote the author Eden, it's just a massive demonstration on the stage of history of our ignorance regarding our own nature and destiny. Said another way, the fact that we're evil is another powerful proof point that there is a God and we're not Him. And also from this statement, we can and should remind ourselves that man's injustice fulfills God's purpose. Not only is God glorified in human injustice, but our injustice fulfills his purpose. Tied to this thought is the concept that our evil actions are used by God. We need look no further than Jesus' death on the cross as evidence for this. In Acts 2.23, Peter is preaching to the Jews to remind them about how they actually fulfilled God's plan by crucifying Jesus. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God is able to bring about his ultimate glory in the face of the ultimate human injustice. And finally, in looking at how God uses human injustice for his glory, man's injustice leads only to death. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. This is 3:19 to 20. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust. And to dust, all return. This is a further unpacking of the root principle that God is God and we are not. The one place is Sheol, the realm of the dead. Humans die like animals. And to be clear, God does not die like animals. God is clearly different because for man, in a life that's apart from God, there is only one outcome, and that's death. And this is a segue into the author's second to last point. Having seen that human injustice also brings glory to God, being reminded that in a life lived under the S-U-N, a life lived apart from God, death is the only option, Cole, it reminds us that there is another option, and that God holds our destiny in his hands. Verse 21, who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down to the earth? This could also be translated, who knows the spirit of man which goes upward and the spirit of the beast which goes down to the earth? To be clear, this is very likely a rhetorical question. The author knows very well that there is a difference between the implications for the spirits of animals and humans after death. He says as much in Ecclesiastes 12.7. For then the dust will return to the earth and the spirit will return to God who gave it. In fact, Psalm 29 provides a comprehensive parallel to this concept whereby the first half of the psalm, verses 1 through 12, points out that man and beast are alike in dying, but in verses 13 to 20, he points out very clearly that they are distinct in their destiny beyond the grave. We won't take time to go there, but the fact that God holds our destiny in his hands is reiterated in this rhetorical question. And so it's clear that, sub-point number one, not all are destined for separation from God. The main point here is that it's God that defines that destiny, and God holds our destiny in his hands. 
God's sovereignty over everything, and particularly over man, is a point that is well and clearly defined throughout the Old Testament. The author Provan puts it this way, that God, not mortal beings, controls the times is a fundamental biblical conviction. Thus, the biblical account of Israel's past does not actually focus primarily on the social and political forces that drive history or on the great heroes who are said to shape its direction. It portrays the past rather as an entity shaped by God who acts in grace and judgment in the midst of all the actions of its human and other participants to move time along towards his, God's own goal. So God holds our destiny in his hands. And so we come to the final verse of the final section of the author's opening argument in Ecclesiastes. Verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen before them? Before we jump into this this last verse and what it means, let's get our bearings once again. And this time we're just looking at chapter 3. 3, 1 to 15. If God is sovereign in his disposal of earthly events, 16 to 20, and if he has a purpose even in allowing human injustices, verse 21, and he holds our ultimate destiny in his hands, then 22, the attitude of the wise should be joyful confidence in the pursuit of earthly responsibilities and the pleasures they bring. So let's break down this final point. 322, so I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. We should be joyfully confident in the pursuit of earthly responsibilities and pleasures. Listen to this theme that resounds throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Flip back just a page or two and trace this theme throughout the book. Ecclesiastes 2.24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. And then 3.12-13. to 13. And I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. 5, 18 to 19. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. The few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. And finally, 9, 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in all your toil at which you toil under the sun. So again, we should rejoice in and enjoy what God has laid before us. If God is sovereign in his orchestration of history, which he is, and if he has a purpose in even allowing human injustice, which he does, and if he holds our destiny in his hands, which we know, then we should be joyfully confident in whatever this life brings us, and that includes being joyfully confident in God's work on the cross. 
This last part of verse 22, for who can bring them to see what will happen after them. This is a very simple closing statement, but it's powerful and important. It's referring to this fundamental principle that we don't get to come back and redo our life. That's the point the author's making. If the author were here speaking to us today, he'd use words like, you have one shot at life. There are no do-overs. Putting all that together, God says, I'm sovereign. I have a purpose in all the events of your life. I hold your destiny in my hands, and you should be joyful and confident in that and that alone. And indeed, we can be confident and even joyful in God's just and perfectly timed orchestration of the events of our lives. If you ever need a reminder of where your hope lies and what you're longing for, just turn to Revelation 19. If you don't have verses 11 through 16 highlighted in your Bible, I encourage you to do so. And as we turn there, I'd ask Josh and the worship team to come up. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. To give you some context in what this passage describes, and regardless of your eschatology, this is the defining moment when Christ returns to rule and to judge and to make right every injustice that has taken place in the history of mankind. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him in white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here, right here, is where we find our joyful confidence. And it's easy to get caught up in the beauty of the themes and images of war in this passage. There's absolutely a military-like victory that transpires as the enemies of God are defeated in a singular and violent fashion. But trace back with me to verse 14. His armies are arrayed in pure white linen, white horses. There's not a mention of a mark or a splatter on his armies. There is no description of a back-and-forth, nail-biting, edge-of-your-seat battle with losses on both sides. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, defeats everything that is unjust with a sword from his mouth, and it's done. Not a drop of blood is shed from his side. But now let's move back to verse 13. His robe is dipped in blood. It's important to note this is not the blood from the battle. It's not from those he slaughtered. It's not even from those who are standing next to him. It's his blood. And he shed it on the cross. The greatest injustice of human history was also the singular moment of the ultimate act of divine justice. God's son hangs on a cross. He takes on every injustice ever perpetrated, every injustice that you and that I have committed. He experiences the wrath of his father for all those injustices of all time, and he pays the price. God's sovereignty was upheld, his plan was fulfilled, 
and his rescue mission was accomplished. And if we walk away from that, it's pretty easy to understand how hell makes sense. If you're here today or you're within the sound of my voice, don't wait to take rest in and accept God's justice. Take the opportunity right now to accept Christ's death on the cross as the atonement for your sin and enter into joyful confidence of a personal relationship with the only sovereign God. And if you have a relationship with God, but you're struggling to understand and accept God's just sovereignty, it's my prayer that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I would understand even just a glimpse of the truth before us. That God holds everything in his hand in spite of mankind. His plan will be accomplished, and you can and will experience the joy of resting in God's justice as we trust God with what is yet to come.